pass on, right? Say it again. I thought I heard someone answer. No? What about uh, living? Did you notice where it says, let us keep living by that same standard? So the word keep living. In other words, keep on, right? So you can mark that word as well. Okay, so in that segment, you have all these. What kind of words would you call these? They are definitely exhortations. Exhortations to take action, right? To move on. They're verb-type words, right? Action words. All right, so in there, what else do we see in there? The upward call. Very interesting. Now... Tell me, what, is, what do you think is going on with that upward call? What is it speaking of? In the context of the flow of thought there, what does the upward call link back to and back to? A goal and a prize. A goal and a prize. And what is the prize that's being talked about in this part of the book? There you go, to attain to the resurrection. Isn't that really interesting? Go all the way back to verse 10 in Philippians 3, and you see he speaks about um, the idea of, uh, previous to that, about righteousness, right? And he makes some comparisons between law and faith. And then he goes in verse 10, that I may know him uh, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In order that I may, what? Attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of for by Christ Jesus. What have you been laid hold of for in Christ Jesus? That one day you will, what? Attain to the resurrection. And so what's really cool is if you did not catch it, resurrection begins in verse 10, and it goes all the way to verse 21. So even though you can break this segment down into a couple of paragraphs, you can also see a theme that actually runs into the whole last half of this. It's like the first half leads into it, and the last half says this is why. This is what the actual uh, purpose or focus is for you as believers. So we see the resurrection. He says then about that, he talks about forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Well, what lies ahead? Our resurrection, right? I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Move all the way down, he says in verse 20, for our citizenship is where? In heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of what? The power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So what is that power speaking about? The resurrection. That he's going to transform our bodies, the lowly state that we're in now, into and be conformed into his glory, into that which is in the likeness of his glory. So we see the subject then of resurrection. Let's put that up here. And it's titled in like, I, I've listed them on here. 
the upward call, the exertion of the power that he has, what lies ahead, that for which I was laid hold of, conformity with the body of his glory. So all of those are, are different ways of stating or mentioning that the, that the goal, the, 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 what we're to set our eyes upon is that day that we will have our resurrected body that we will be with the Lord. He will come to receive us to himself. Isn't that exciting? If this does not get you excited, I don't know what will. Here we are. We have been, really, you guys, I'm thinking, okay, what is our major theme again? Rejoice in the Lord always. Would you can you give me any, even one reason in chapter 3 why we should be rejoiceful as we're living this life? Because the resurrection is coming. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times in my personal life I say to myself, one day this mess will be over and I will be with the Lord. I mean, really, if that cannot help keep you grounded and keep your heart set in the right mindset, I don't know what will. And there's a, pe- yes. I know it exactly. I lo- that's perfect, Brenda. If that don't light your fire, your wood's wet, and that is so. That's how I felt. I th- I have decided chapter three is my favorite chapter. It, as we are studying the subject of rejoice in the Lord always, he starts with that subject of the of circumstances and struggles and suffering, and you know his own personal suffering was that he was in prison and he didn't know if he was going to live or die, and that was. And that was hard for him, but what did he do? He kept his eyes set upon Christ and upon serving Christ, right? Then he goes in chapter 2 and he's saying, you know, when, not only should you keep your eyes on Christ, but you need to keep your eyes on others. If, if you want to be joyful in your faith walk, you need to stop being so introspective all the time. You need to stop thinking about how your life is so horrible and that, that woe is me kind of attitude that so many Christians have. If you spend your life walking around with your head between your knees and whimpering about your circumstance, and it may not be a good circumstance. I'm not belittling or demeaning it in any way. But truly, no matter how bad your circumstance is, what he teaches us in chapter 2 is if you will keep your eyes on serving others, you will have a joyful heart in Lord. Because your focus will be upon how can I help others. I, oh, Marion Sire, who just passed away, she is the perfect example of that. This woman who was um, battling with a brain tumor, her, her vision had been taken. She couldn't get around anymore. She could hardly see to do her homework. And yet, you know what she had done every week? Her homework. She did the best that she could. And you're right, Brenda. Sometimes she would fill in her, the, the sheets on her paper with an ink pen that she forgot to you know, raise the ink, lit, uh, the ink point up on. And so she'd be writing away thinking she's filled it in and she didn't put a thing down on paper. That is perseverance. That is a woman who's got her eyes set on, really, not herself, but on, number one, Jesus Christ, glorifying him, living for him, him first, no matter what, regardless of how bad her life was, she wanted to love Jesus and know him better. And then secondarily, the idea that she was still serving in her church to her last days. She was up early going to the church, preparing coffee. She was in Bible study. She was 
one of the things that he was telling in that story I thought was so cute was that she would sometimes park herself purposely in a chair somewhere near to the coffee area where all the people would come over to coffee. And she would basically eavesdrop on people's conversations so that she could write them down as prayer requests and be praying for the body of Christ. Not to, not to eavesdrop to be a nosy busybody, but because she wanted to have more pr- things to pray about that were relevant. So at the coffee station, she, she could hear people say, my son and my daughter-in-law, and this is going on and that's going on, or, or my husband or my finances or whatever. And she would pick up on things and she would write them down and she'd go home and she would pray. And she had stacks and stacks and stacks and sheets of prayer requests that she had laid out. She spent hours in prayer. That is living outside of yourself. That is living for others. That is what chapter 2 is about. Get outside of yourself, serving others, and you will stop thinking about your own woes, right? And you will spend your time functionally and usefully and purposefully uh, by serving the Lord in that way. If that's not enough, now he takes us in chapter 3 and starts talking about what we are to have our eyes upon, the goal, the upward call in Christ Jesus. And I did not know what that term meant until I did this chapter. I always thought the upward call had to do with your call into faith. And, of course, it starts there. But in the context of how chapter 3 flows, he introduces the subject of his resurrection in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, speaks about the power of his resurrection, that truly he wants to know him, and he wants to know the power of his resurrection. We're going to talk about that word know in a little bit. And then he goes on and through all the way to the very end, he he concludes it in 21. He says, we are eagerly waiting for our Savior. We are eagerly waiting, awaiting his arrival, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. I love that. It's an exciting chapter. Okay, now, so chapter chapter 3 has got... Uh, beware in the beginning. Then we see flesh and confidence come up in 3 to 6. 7 to 11 is righteousness, the law, and faith. There's some contrast going on there. Pressing on, reaching forward, walking. These are all action words, right? Things that that he wants us to do, and then the subject of resurrection. Certainly, I'm sure you marked Jesus and God, Right? We hope. Oh, no. We're laughing, Lisa. Yes. Is Jesus marked? Make sure you mark it. (laughs) Okay. Now, the next thing that can be helpful is if you did not happen to pick up on all those key words, another way to successfully find your key words is to simply look at your contrast. Did you notice that this is like the contrast queen chapter? (laughs) This one is just loaded. Tell me what you see for contrast that are going on here. Yeah, the false circumcision and the true Which, of course, then brings up the subject studies. Uh, In one case, it's going to be the subject for us is going to be circumcision. So we're going to talk about that subject when we get when we get to that point. All right, so that's your first one, and that's uh, contrast is verses two and three. 
All right. Now, when you look at that alone, the false circumcision, the true circumcision, what is, who is that, or what, is there another contrast that you can actually pull out of that then that you see? Okay, faith and law. And that comes down a little bit lower. He actually does expound on that. Let's do it backwards. I'll put them backwards so that you can see that better. Law and faith, so that they're lined up. The true circumcision is faith. The false is the law, right? Those are in verse... Nine, and if you look at the at the the basic kind of, kind of the I'm breaking down the those who would participate in the what is false and those who would participate in what is true. Did you notice that that the scripture actually goes on to kind of expound on even some of the motives behind him and. In the opening of the book, he actually even identifies them, right? And he calls them, like, names. <laughs> it's almost like he's, he's, he's poking at Yeah, he calls them dogs, right? And then what else did he call them? Evil workers and then the false circumcision, right? Later, when you go on, I think it was in verse 19, how does he then go on and clear, uh, clarify? Or no, it's in verse 18. Who does he call them there in 18? enemies of the cross. So with that in mind, can you see also then that in this chapter, we really kind of have a us and them kind of contrast going on. It's the true versus the false. It's the evil workers versus those who are in faith. So you could actually come up with a contrast in this one of the, he calls us we or us, and he also calls us brethren right? Oops, I'm putting this on the wrong side. Evil workers. <laughs> and we, us, and the brethren. Um, or enemies of the cross. So now this takes it now to you know, where you're seeing an us and them, right? Here we have the halos, the we, the us, they are the enemies of the, and they have no halos, <laughs> right? So I think that's really helpful, though, when you realize that what he's actually doing is he's showing that there's, that there is an us and a, a them, or a we and a they in this subject matter that you're looking at. It, I kept thinking of Galatians myself. I kept thinking this is almost, except that he doesn't weigh as heavily into the law versus faith, but he does mention it. And what he does, though, in this context is he, he focuses more upon kind of the motives of the heart in it, does he not, in this particular chapter? So in that, when you look at the we, the us, the brethren, but on the evil workers, he calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers, and he calls them the false circumcision. So I hope that all of you took time to do a little word study on each of those, because if you didn't, there it, it was helpful for really clarifying what it was that he was saying about them. He wasn't just calling them names. It was, there was actually a, 
a characteristic ab about each of those quality statements that helps to identify these people. Now, tell me where do you think these people are in his life and in their lives? They're actually among them. These are people who have affixed themselves to the church in some way or another, and they've been, they are participating. That's not all of them. There could be some that are outside, but I can tell you this. Those who are outside are obvious. There would be no complication in that. He's trying to reveal the ones that are within them, that are among them, who are going to deceive them. And he says, beware of these, because this is, who this is what their motives are about. So when you do your word studies on those three things, dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision, you're going to begin to see the motives of their heart, what's motivating them. And he's saying, I want you to beware of this. These are the ones who are among you who are going to possibly deceive you, right? All right, so what else do we see for contrast? That's kind of what, there you go, what was gain? Yeah, you could just say loss and gain. That would do it. <laughs> Count to be loss. That's in verse 7 and 8. Okay, what was gain? Now I'm going to count it to be loss. Concerning the, sub the subject of righteousness, was there a contrast in there for you? Mm -hmm. In essence, yes. But, but look in verse 9, and you're going to see, he's saying about righteousness, there's a righteousness that comes from where? From God, and that's contrasted then a righteousness that comes from where? Of my own, right? Does he say he's a righteousness of my own? Is that how it says it? Am I wrong? Yeah, of my own, derived from the law. So my own righteousness derived from the law versus righteousness which, is, which comes from God. Hello. I'm sorry. Say it again, Lisa. Yes. Right. Okay. When you guys are doing some of these list make these lists like what we're doing right now, we're looking at contrasts, or you're just even marking keywords. Have you had difficulty with any of the sentences that you've looked at where you're going, I don't exactly know what he's saying there? One of the, th what Lisa just brought up is a very good point. What I like to do and what you all are encouraged to do, even though Kata will not tell you this in the homework, it's just a skill, an inductive skill that you can put into practice. Go to a Bible comparison segment on your Bible programs and look at it in a different translation. You know, look at it in... Um, New King James, look at it in um, uh, even the Living Bible, even some of the paraphrased ones will phrase it differently, but then go back to actual translations, not, tr not commentary type uh, Bibles, but go to some of the others. But by looking at those, sometimes because of the way they will write it, they will write it out in a different way, it'll just 
spark your mind to start seeing it better. They are. Exactly. Right. You're right. And, and that's why I warn, you know, I, I like the message and the New Living Translation sometimes just because the way they, they expound on it and the way that they state it is in much more common thinking and language. And so there's nothing really wrong with it. You don't want to study out of those Bibles. But to help enhance possibilities, broaden your thinking on what you're looking at. If you're stuck, go and look at these. Honestly, the best thing, though, is to look at New American Standard, look at the NIV, look at the um, the English Bible translation, look at, you know, look at some actual translation books and just look to see how it's phrased. Often what they will do is the one word that's tripping you up, sometimes they'll just put a different word in there. And by adding a different word, your mind will go, oh, why didn't he say that? <laughs> right? Um, the other thing, of course, is when you get tripped up, stop, take the time and do your word studies on the words that are in that sentence that you're struggling with. Often, by doing your word studies, you will get an expounded definition of what it is that he's saying, and that will help you to clarify the, your understanding on, on the point that he's making. Um, it doesn't always work, but often it will, okay? So those are a couple of tricks that you can do when you hit words or, or sentences that are not making sense to you. All right, uh, so we saw law and faith was up here. We see... Uh, in uh, the enemies of the cross or the evil workers versus us and we and the brethren. So there's this, this two groups that are being exposed from within their own congregation, from within their church. And he's saying about them um, that they are dogs, they're evil workers, and they're the false circumcision. And very interesting to me is um, when we did the book of Hebrews, we kind of had this going on in our book, but I didn't understand it until we got almost at the end. Um, and had I picked up on this kind of pattern early, I think it would have clarified so much of what we looked at in the book of Hebrews. Because when you are addressing a congregation, this letter is a congregational address. He is writing a letter to a body of people who are under a roof, basically, together. It doesn't mean everyone under that roof is saved. And he's letting them know that amongst you, in your midst, there can be those who have got a wrong heart for God they, or they don't have a heart for God. Or that their motives, the things that are propelling them forward, are not accurate. And actually, as a matter of fact, one of the things he says in here is if you have a different attitude about this, what's going to happen? He's praying for them that what will happen? that God will reveal it to them, right? In verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, who, who knows what that word perfect is saying? Complete, okay? And in the context of this particular verse, which of those two groups is he speaking about? The evil workers or the us brethren? The brethren. So in essence, you can say those of us who are perfect, he's saying right there directly to those of you who are saved. To those of you who are believers, right, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, what's God going to do? That's God. God is going to reveal that to you. So in other words, there's going to be conviction 
in your heart by the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you what truth is. I'm laying it out there for you. Now, if you have a different attitude about this, I want you to ponder on it. I want you to think on it. I want you to allow God to teach you, and God will. If you're wrong, God is going to guide you correctly because what is God's job anyway in the life of each of his children? There you go. To, to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. That he desi- Actually, that was a perfect one, Martha. That was like, nail it. Good girl. Because that takes us back to when God is working in our lives, his, his whole heart, his whole function is to take you to that day of Christ Jesus blameless and pure. He wants you to walk in holiness before you. He wants you to enter into, and guess what? You will. And so since, but here's the deal. You have to cooperate with God in this. You have to have a heart that's open and a mind that's open to say, God, correct me when I'm off base on things. And what he's saying here is, amongst you are some of these people who are these evil workers that are obviously their heart is in, a, in the wrong place. And God can correct If you happen to be acting like any of these, God can correct you. God can even take these and make them into true believers by through this testimony he's given. He's giving them truth about how you actually have relationship with God that takes you to that resurrection glory one day. And these people's minds and hearts can be, tr- can be transformed, can be led into a true belief, a true understanding of knowledge of God. Yeah. Maybe. Falling back into. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, and, and when he's talking about this, the way that Paul addressed, part, yes, the Judaizers, that's exactly what it is. The, so pe- these are people who have, have at least made lip service to say that they've come into faith. Now, it's not us to decide who has and who hasn't. That's between them and God. However, what Paul is saying is there is external evidence and there needs to be a truth in the way that you walk before God. And if you are walking before God, relying on the wall and the law and relying on self-righteous acts, then you're in the wrong place and God need, will convict you if you'll let him. Um, if you're not in faith, God can, still, can also convict you and bring you into faith. He doesn't really go into that in detail, but those are the two scenarios that are possible right? And what he's saying to you is, those who are, who, are the, who are walking as enemies to the cross, one of two things, they either don't know God, or they need to be convicted. Either way, he wants to bring them into the right relationship with God, so they walk into the true knowledge of who God is. All right, so we have now um, kind of looked pretty good at the, the, the those cross uh, those contrasts. We've got our keywords covered. Now let's look in. Um, well, there's a whole lot more. Do you guys want to do the rest of the contrasts? I've got tons more. Like I've got a whole nother sheet. Okay, go ahead, Martha. We'll rip them out there, girl. Yeah, it's. Ca- what was gain I count to be loss? Yes. Um, I had a 
Right. Uh, that's very interesting thought, too, when you consider it from the contrast point, that I've not yet attained it, yet I press on. So what, what does that make you um, think about in your faith walk with the Lord then? Yeah, it is all about sanctification, and it's all about it's never over. You're never done. You, and here we have Paul, who for most of us, you know, we kind of put him up on this little pedestal, and he's the pillar, right? And we think of him, and he does even say of himself, follow my example. He does consider himself to be the example. And even though he says, follow my example, he says, I yet press on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you keep doing it until the end. Yes. In Hebrews, that's what exactly it says. It's, it's he who belongs to the house of faith is he who does it, presses on or work or um, he is faithful until the end, I think is what it was saying in, in Hebrews 3 and 4. Remember, we kept saying that. All the way to the end. Now that I have a better thought concerning the idea of within the household of faith, that sometimes he's when he addresses the church, he's not he's not addressing exclusively only Christians. Often, what you have to do is parse it out and say what applies to an unbeliever and what applies to a believer. And if you are a believer, then what is he saying to you? And if you're an unbeliever, what is he saying to you? And what are the truths? And so you never violate your known doctrines. If, in fact, a person's in faith, then these are things are true about him. If he's not in faith, then this is what Paul is calling them into. So that's kind of what we see going on in this, in this particular uh, letter as well. He is writing to a collective body. It has been, we had determined about 11 or 12 years maybe uh, since the birthing of this church, and now he's writing back to them. And so the church has grown we hope, right? Some, some more people have come in. It was a small congregation, but it had grown since the, its birth 11 years prior. And so now he's writing to this body, and, for, and in some cases, some of them he doesn't know. So he doesn't really know who he's addressing. So he has to basically kind of cover all his bases. So when you're looking at the messages that are in here, what you have to do in, is, as a, a good student of God's word is make discerning choices as to what applies to whom. So if he's writing to a, 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 a them and us group, there's those and there's the others, and he's saying make application where it's appropriate. And as it is appropriate, don't violate your doctrine. Know this, that those of us who are in faith, these things are true. But for those who are actually living a life in the, in the church among believers, playing a game of self-righteous acts and trying to draw others back into self-righteous acts, then you need to know this about them. They, I call them evil workers and dogs and the false circumcision. And he's really rebuke. It's a strong rebuke. All right. Now, chapter themes. Let's go and do this by chapters in. Our book theme, start again here, book theme. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, so there's our major theme for the book. Chapter one, what was it? That's right, live to Christ. 
chapter 2. That's right. Live for others. Now we're ready to look at chapter 3. On the whole, what do you think is going on here then? We've, we've pulled out our, our key verses. We've looked at um, the major flow. Now that we've talked about the subject, for instance, of resurrection, it starts in chapter or verse 10 and goes all the way to 21. Half this book is about something that's coming in the future, right? Um, and interspersed in there, you can break the rest of the chapter down yet into great paragraph uh, divisions that we've looked at over here, right? We stopped at 11. When you get to um, 10 to 12, in particular, actually it, go, actually it goes 10 to 20, is it 21 or 22? 21, okay. It's actually 10 to 21. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that. So it's 10 to 21 is about the subject of the resurrection. And then we go, when you look at chapter, hold on. We did 7 to 11 was about righteousness. Uh, 12 to 16 was this one, right? The pressing on, the action words, correct? 12 to 16, did everybody catch that? Okay, then you get to, uh, 17 to 21, and what do we see? Okay, so it's again, follow his pattern, and ultimately, he, he says to them, for, because again, you know, it's really neat. Yeah, he makes a conclusion statement after all that he said so far up to this point. Then he says, for this reason. You're going to walk, you're going to do, you're going to keep, you're going to uh, press on. And he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And what are we waiting for? We are waiting for the Savior from heaven, right? And for the day when what's going to happen when he comes? Oh, we will be conformed into, his, into the image of his glory. So in verses, um, what is it? It's going to be 17 to 21. What do you think is going to be that major key word in there? Again, it's probably going to be about the resurrection, right? 17 to 21. So you can kind of break it down, but really, this whole last half could just be one subject, the resurrection. Okay, so let's look at how we can title this. Give me your, your how, how did you guys title what's going on here? Yeah, the, yes, uh, because they, you're absolutely so. There's a great contrast. We are to walk. According to the standard. Now, that's interesting. Did you? Uh, link that back to a previous verse by chance. What standard? That same standard. What standard? Did you did you find the verse that he's actually making reference to by chance when you evaluated it? 
let me help you. <laughs> Go back to verse 9, <laughs> where he, he's talking about um, the contrast there between those who have a righteousness which comes through the law versus those who have a righteousness that comes uh, from God. And how does it come to us through, to God? Through faith, right? So through faith in Christ Jesus, we have a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the standard. The standard for what? That through, through faith in Christ Jesus, we, we will attain to righteousness. You cannot attain to it. You, the standard is not works. The standard that we need to attain to, that we need to hold fast to, that we need to strive for, that we need to walk in, is that we are walking by faith. And that righteousness is imputed to us by God through faith. And it made me very clearly go to Genesis. Anybody else happen to do that in their brain? When Abraham believed God, what happened? It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then when you move into the New Testament, there are passages that talk about that. And it says righteousness was not imputed to him when he was circumcised, was it? But it was imputed to him before the circumcision. And God cut covenant with him back in chapter 15 of Genesis. So in this statement here, he says, however, let us keep living by that same standard. What same standard? Walking by faith. Okay, so you might want to put it yourself a little note that it takes you back to verse 9 where it introduces the subject of the standard. What is the standard? Walking by faith. And he says, we who are perfect have this attitude. And if anything in you, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The only way you can attain to Christ and attain to the resurrection is by faith. It can't happen any other way. And, and so he says, walk according to the standard. And that was contrasted with, um, I don't have that one. Hold, hold on. not to walk okay let's by earthly oh, walking to the standard was is that also 19 16. Okay, got it. Okay, so there's the contrast. Walk according to the standard, which is faith. Explain what they know about Judaizers. Right. So they weren't opposed to Jesus as being the Messiah, that he came and died and resurrected. But they were saying, along with believing that, that there needed to be additional things that you needed to do in order to actually have salvation. 
legalism. And would you say that's a problem that we have in some of our churches today? And, in, and quite honestly, even within every one of us, there's kind of a legalism thing that just raises its little ugly head in us that we kind of set standards in our mind or in our thinking that says, well, yeah, you're saved, but... You know, I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. We kind of give ourselves a list, sort of, in our thinking. And what, what we're seeing here is he's saying, no, you are to walk according to the standard that's been set. The clear teaching is that your righteousness comes uh, from God through faith, not through the acts or the works of the law. There, and does he actually not say that? Look in verse... Um, Three, for we are the true circumcision, and how are we wor worshiping him? In the spirit of God, and glory we glory in who? In Christ. In, the, in essence, if you wanted to title this chapter, could you actually pull a title right out of chapter or verse three there? It's one possibility I, I came up with. In my thinking, if he's trying to tell you, you need to rejoice in the Lord, Lord always, in chapter 3, what does he want your focus to be on? On Christ Jesus, to glory in Christ Jesus. D did anybody look up the word glory by chance? That word glory there. No? Let me give it to you. That word glory, and I'm not going to write it down. I'm just going to give it to you so you can write it in your sheet if you want. Put above that word glory. It's number 2744, and it, the definition is rejoice. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> now, there's that word glory again, two other places here. One is in um, verse 19 and another one in 21. Once I saw that uh, that said, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, um, I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if these others are saying rejoice also. Well, I looked them up, and the answer is no. <laughs> the same word glory, but it translates differently. The word in uh, verse 19, glory, is 1391, and in 21, it's the same one, 1391. And that word glory is the word doxa, D-O-X-A, and it literally means dignity, honor, praise, or pride. So it says, and let me read it for you in 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame. In other words, their dignity or their praise or their pride is, is really their shame because they're glorying in the wrong things. They're getting their praise from the wrong things. Yes. Well, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. In each, in, each, in each place, you have to look the word up. That's the point. We translated in English the word glory, but in three places in here, it's two different meanings. The first one is, the, is the, literally the word rejoice. It's number 27. Okay, all right, in the, uh, the other one, 2744, which is in verse, uh, was it three? It's K-O-W-K-H-A-H-O-M-A-H-E-E. -E. <laughs> it's a totally, it's not doxa. <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> I, okay, well, let, actually, let me give you the transliteration of it. That's how you pronounced it. K-A-U-C-H-A-O-M-A-I. Let's pronounce that again. Kakamai. That doesn't sound nice. <laughs> cow. I am not a cow. Thank you very much. But yes, that is so cute. Anyway, so in, in the first one, the kakamai, which is glory in Christ Jesus, that means rejoice. It's the word rejoice. But in the other two in, of glory, it is the, the word basically dignity, honor, pride, praise. So they're getting their praise from other things, their glory from other things, right? But in the first one, it's literally rejoice. So I loved that. When I had picked that out, I had picked it out as a possi- one of my possible titles. I have a couple going here. One possibility would be in chapter 3, uh, to glory in Christ Jesus. Glory is rejoice. So if you want to say rejoice in the Lord always, how? By glorying or by rejoicing in Christ Jesus himself. I think that's pretty cool. Um, but if you want to focus more on the, the, uh, the other, because there's really two major things. Going. Number one, the most major thing, obviously, is all about Jesus. So it would be very appropriate to, to, to have a title where it, the focus is on the glorying in Christ Jesus, because that is what this uh, major, overall, that is the theme that's going on here. But there's another major theme in here that's more specific to the subject matter, and that is, where is your focus? What is your end, end game? A couple questions came to me earlier, and I mentioned them to you, but, you know, the questions need to be, if I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always, it, I need to ask the question, how do I do that? What makes it possible for me to rejoice always? Number one, what makes it possible? And number two, how do I go about doing that? You can come at it from either direction. One is the source that empowers me to do it. The other one is my response to it. In this chapter, we really see both of those things going on. One is all about the faith in Jesus, that that's, that's what, um, what was that word? It said, um, um, the standard by which we have to attain to it? How do you attain to a place where you can rejoice in the Lord always? Well, it has to do with the source of it. And the source of it is Christ Jesus. And if your focus is upon him, that gives it to you an understanding that it's by faith that you appropriate that, then you have got the key that unlocks the door. The appropriation is faith in Christ Jesus. If you focus on that, not on what the other, these evil workers want to do, which is living your life out by works of the law, by legalism, by the letter of the law. That's the contrast. But the other subject matter that comes in here is the resurrection. And it's a huge one in this book. He's saying, if you want to rejoice in the Lord always, you need to understand that you have your eyes set upon an, uh, a, a, the end goal here. What are you heading for? What are you living for? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is your Messiah, if you believe in the, the resurrection of, of, uh, of his physical body and that we also are awaiting that one day, 
Is that enough to help you stay in a place of joy as you're living? Would you say yes or no to that? Is it is your understanding that one day you're going to be resurrected and this life is going to be put behind you, but you're going to have the resurrected body, the glory, the basically you're going to take on his glory, the glory of the resurrection. It's going to be imputed to you. You are going to receive that glorified body. Is that enough to motivate you to keep on keeping on? And in this book where he keeps telling us, Press on, reach forward, walk, keep, keep on living, keep set on that goal. And if you'll do that, then this is what is going to help you live joyfully. Rather than, oh my gosh, I've got all these problems, things are hard, my health is not good, my car is not working, the bills are piling up, you know. And in the case of Paul, I'm in prison, I might die tomorrow for the sake of Christ. But what does he do? Does he let that get him down? What does he do? He turns his eyes upon Jesus. And he says, whether I live or die, I'm going to live unto Christ. And while he's doing that, he's in a prison. And what is he doing? He's writing a letter because he's got his mind on others. He's thinking about their welfare, their benefit. And then he says, ultimately, you need to keep your eyes on the prize the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. That's what's going to keep you joyful living in this life. So title it. Give me, a, give me another title possibility. Okay, there you go. Press on to the upward call. Because that covers the action stuff that's so prevalent in here. Press on to the upward call. The goal for the prize of the upward call, yes. But then he explains what that's talking about as you keep moving forward, especially when he gets to the conclusion in 20 and 21. He is very clearly saying that the goal of the prize is the resurrected body. And the conformity, into, that's right, it's our, it's our translation into our glorified state. That's the prize he's talking about. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? It would be very easy for someone to drop into this chapter without really evaluating it like we have done and say, oh, that's talking about spiritual, that's talking about um, rewards. But is that what it's talking about? It really, it isn't. I don't, it, it's very clearly, he's saying what lies ahead. It's the upward call. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Then he goes on and he says, we will be transformed into the body of our, this humble estate will be transformed into the conformity with the body of his glory. It's speaking about the prize, the upward call is our one day having a glorified body as Christ has. That's the upward, in this context, that's specifically what he's talking about, is that prize, that glorified state. So this body may be tortured right now. You may have health problems. You may, you know, you may have uh, a million problems going on in your personal life. But one day, this body is going to be transformed into his glory. That makes me smile too, Marie. 
<laughs> it does, I, I mean, to me, this is the best chapter out of all the chapters we've, we've looked at so far. I'm thinking, yes, this is what can keep you joyful. This is what can keep you pressing on. This is what can keep you energized so that in this life, when you're exhausted and you've, and you've been taxed at every level, emotionally and physically, that you can say to yourself, when you lay your head down at night, you can say, but Lord, I'm waiting for that day when I see you face to face. And when you take away this body, I think of, of Marion again, take away this body with all its ailments. I think of, of um, uh, people who, who pass away and they've, maybe they've been racked with cancer or maybe they've had several palsy or maybe they've even had, you know, mental retardation or whatever the issue is, that's all going to be gone. One day you're going to have a glorified body fully healthy, completely full of strength. And I can guarantee you, we're not going to just walk into heaven. We're going to do, do cartwheels into heaven. You know, we're going to be running ahead just to see it all. I can't wait. And that is what gets you excited. That's what keeps you full of joy so that you can endure. Rejoice in the Lord always. Can you see how it fits? Rejoice in the, in the Lord always. Press on to the upward call. Any other t possible titles? That's a great one. There you go. Eagerly await. Um, let's see, how did I put it? Eagerly await Jesus. And the resurrection. I added that on because, <laughs> even though you didn't say that part, but uh, that was the verse 20, uh, 2020. Or we can actually do 20 and 21 together on that one. That's right. That's right. But, you know, while we're living here, Paul wants you to be joyful in it. It's not supposed to be a drudgery and a, and a hard thing all the time. It, it does not mean that we don't have sad days. It does not mean that we don't have bad days. But what he's saying is on the whole, you and I, what kind of witness are we to the world if we walk around in this, this attitude of defeatedness all the time? If every little problem that we face seems unsurmountable to us and it, all people see in you is gloom, how is that attractive to the world that you are looking forward to a day when you are going to be in eternity with Jesus? How is that attractive? And it, is, and it isn't. So, and it doesn't mean that you have to live on a high either. I, you know, I'm probably the worst one in the room because I, I am kind of an up. And so I'm, I live there on a regular, just in my natural, because God gave me that personality. I wake up in the morning and I'm kind of up here. My poor husband... He's down here, <laughs> you know? and I, you know, I get on the bus in the, if I'm on a tour with you, I get on the bus in the morning, and, you know, I'm singing, and I'm happy, because I wake up happy, but there's a lot of people that's a struggle, but, but that's not really what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about, because it's not about your personality, it's about your approach to life. Is your approach to life in whatever personality God gave you, is it confidence, are you trusting that God is in it with you? That he who began a good work in you will com complete it? That he is the sovereign over your life? That he has a good plan for you? That even your bad circumstances have purpose and design? 
and that God, it's all filtered through his fingers. Nothing is happening to you that he is not allowed. Nothing. That's kind of scary for some people. How could a good God allow this? Well, because what does he have in mind? What is God's purpose in even bad things? His glory. I'm sorry, say it again. Yes, that God be glorified in it. And for you personally, that you what? Yeah. You had to walk by faith. You had to trust in him. You had to see through his perspective what might be going on here. Think of Paul in prison, and he's, and he's facing the possibility of death. He doesn't know whether he will live or die. And yet, what does he do? He keeps a positive attitude. You know what? I'm, I'm sure that God's going to bring me out. That For your good, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to continue to, uh, to uh, be there for you and to help you and to teach you and to grow you. I am convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. How is it a sign? It is. Have something else going on here? Keep talking. Okay, sorry. Okay, all right. Let's let's take let's take away. Let's move on to um, our. Let's okay. So we've got t possibilities here. We got like three possible, really good ones. Here's one title, glory in Christ Jesus. Another one is press on to the upward call. Another one, be eagerly await Jesus and the resurrection. Now, for titles, I think I'm going to skip going through with you my titles on my paragraphs, because guess what? I gave you the outline possibilities. And now that you see the major key words, would it be pretty easy for you to title your paragraphs on your own? Next week, maybe I'll do a check on that. Maybe we'll start with it, and I'll see how did you title those paragraphs because it's, an, it's important for you to learn to experience doing it for yourself so that you see how it's done. And so I've kind of given you enough, enough insight to see where you should be heading on that. So I'll skip that part of my chart. Um, oh gosh, when I send the chart out though, you'll have it. No cheating. No cheating. <laughs> you have to title your paragraphs before you look at my chart, okay? <laughs> okay, now, let's talk about some of the subjects. She had us look at a couple of subjects this, this time. One of the things she asked us to do 
was to make a list on the comp the things that you have that Paul uh, listed as his confidence in the flesh, and then he said, "I want you to compare it to." Uh, your present day life are there is there anything that's kind of equivalent in our present life that's similar to this what were the things that Paul had confidence in the flesh in okay he said um, first of all he he said in verse 5 what circumcised circumcised the eighth day. Yeah, let's do it in the order that it is in here if we can. That's in verse 5. And then we're going to go back and fill in how it compares with things today. The next one was that he was born of the nation, the nation of Israel. He claimed that as, a, basically it was a touting. Again, it's like what they said over here. It's these, these of, of, of the group called the false circumcision who put their faith in the law and in the requirements of the law as opposed to faith on Christ Jesus himself. And so he's making a list here of the things that he's doing. He said he's also of the tribe, tribe of Benjamin. And that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that's also in verse 5. Um, and then he says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Also verse 5. And then the, uh, the last one was... That as to the righteousness which is in the law, he felt that he was found blameless. And I'm going to put in parentheses, by, because of the law, by the law, he was found blameless. Okay, now, let's... Isn't that pretty... Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's very interesting to me is, is that an unusual attitude for the Jewish people to have? Not at all. And as a matter of fact, then how would you translate that since we're standing there right now? How do you translate that into a modern thinking? Are there people who think like that in our world today? How? There you go. Flamblamus. I've, I, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I've never killed, or I have never killed anyone. It's it is it's a checklist, okay? A checklist of goodness, <laughs> right? Have you ever spoken to anyone who um, doesn't even really see their sin? They you know they don't necessarily see themselves as sinners because for them a sinner is a person who's in prison, <laughs> right? Wow. Wow. Okay. So what I put down on mine was actually. Yes. That's it. I put on mine self-righteousness. 
That's really what it came down to in my thinking. I was, I rationalized through everything. I was thinking, well, in the world today, then that would be a person who's really self-righteous. They have their own standard, their own checklist, and they measure up. And so by their own standard, um, uh, what do they call it? Situational ethics. And people go, well, in my life, this is okay because, and they justify why it's okay. And in their thinking and in their world and the people that they hang with and the experiences that they've had, they have justified themselves through their own personal checklist. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to put self... Self, the idea of being self-righteous, right. Well, let's go back up to the top then. What about this confidence in the flesh? How do you see this today? Circumcise the eighth day. What, that, what would that be today? Yeah. Yes. So the idea of being baptized or being confirmed or being, see, there's, a com, yeah, like the confirmation that some churches go through, a confirmation, and then they're just deemed. I remember, you know, filling out, filling out sheets on, on this in, when I worked in the military chapel, and people would go through a confirmation ceremony, and it was like they were, okay, confirmation. And on that confirmation paperwork it actually said because of it they were filled with the holy spirit that's scary that's scary because yeah but that's scary because that's what they're teaching they're teaching that if you check the list off and do these certain things we're going to confirm you and we're confirming that you have the holy spirit because of the things you did not because of what christ did and that you believe in not because you have faith in the uh the who Christ is, that he came, that he died, that he was resurrected, that uh, his blood is what paid the debt, that his work on the cross is what justified you. It's not about any of that. It's you did these things. You memorized certain verses. You showed up so many times. You did so many good works. You, you did these things, and now I'm giving you a confirmation that you have the Holy Spirit. And they would do, and it was literally on, I almost fainted when I read it. I was like, are they kidding? Is that really what they believe? They believe that by filling the, the, the boxes, that, that that means they have the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So this is interesting. So being baptized, I can tell you, going through a church, going to church and being baptized does not get you saved. Not, not, the purpose for baptism is what? It's, it's exactly right. It's the, it's the, it's the result of this in, inward relationship that you have with God. You come to God by faith, and then you are baptized. Then it's all good. But baptism itself is not what saves you, right? It's, it's hard to evangelize people who think they've lived a good life and then they're going to get into hell because God wants to hurt them and Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's it. How about the other one, uh, the, na the nation of Israel? He's of the nation of Israel. So he's saying, I belong to this nation. So what might that be equivalent to for us? Okay, belonging to the right church, right. Or, 
or even uh, well, I kind of put that one here. But the idea of the of the of the um, yeah, or the right family. What if your whole family is Christian? So I was born into a Christian family. My mom and dad are Christians. So guess what I am? By osmosis, I am too, right? Huh? There you go. That's exactly right. Born of the nation of Israel. If you're born into a Christian family, you are a Christian. That might be the thinking that would come from that. Of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, now we're back to of the right group or the right. So that would be of the right denomination or the right church. I belong to and I belong to the respected denomination in my circles. And so because I belong to the right church, right? belong to the, and I'm going to put in quotes here, the right church or the right denomination, according to you. But that's your standard. Now, if you're, it's, it's honestly, the Jews would say of themselves, if you're not a Jew, you're, you don't count, right? You're, it, it is us and them. Uh, there's the, the, the Jews and then there's the Gentiles only. They didn't really call them Gentiles in a nice way. They were the, they were the heathens, <laughs> right? There's us and them. <laughs> and so here where he's saying I was of the tribe of Benjamin, not only that, but among our own circles, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which makes me of the, the, the best of the best in my inner circles, right? So he touted this, this arrogance or this pride in who he was born into. Was he in control of who he was born into? Were you and I born, uh, uh, did we have any control over who our parents were? So why should anybody tout that as a reason to glory, to have pride, which he says later, their pride is their shame. Why is it that if you're born into a Christian home that that makes you so special? Now, are you blessed? Yes. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be born into a Christian home? Yes. Because you get exposed to all the right things. But that does not make you. It's like, it's like what you said, Diane. You know, being uh, in a garage doesn't make you a car. You know, just because you're you put yourself there doesn't mean you are. So belonging to the tribe of Benjamin would be equivalent to maybe be belonging to the right church or to the, quote, right denomination. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This one might have taken you a little bit of work. Did anybody look this up and kind of parse this out a bit? When he speaks about a Hebrew of Hebrews, does anybody know the background on this? Please say yes, nobody. Okay, um, apparently there, there were Hebrews, and we know this, so as soon as I say it, you're going to go, oh yeah, I'm on board. Um, because there was um, Hellenistic influence going on in the culture at that time, even to that day, even all the way through to the Roman Empire, there was Hellenistic uh, uh, Greek influence on the, on the Jews, and so they were learning to speak Greek, which was a common language of the day. Um, he's saying, I was born into a family which kept the purity of my teaching. I, I learned to speak Hebrew. I thought Hebrew. I was educated in Hebrew. We did not become tainted by the world around us. 
So how might that be translated into our world today? So you're born into the right family. There you go. You have had the cream of the crop of the teaching, and you've adhered to it. As a family and, a, and in your personal life, you, you come from a conservative, uh, valued home and environment, and you have been faithfully practicing it always. Your, the, the history of Christianity in your life has, has been maintained all the way through. You are a Hebrew of Hebrews. You are a Christian of Christians. You're, you're the best of the Christians, right? So it's the idea that, I think that's exactly it, Martha. You went to the right school. You went to a Christian school. You've had Christian experiences. You've had uh, Christian ca camps in the summer. All your friends are Christian, and you hang out with other people who are like-mindedness. And so basically by osmosis, by rubbing shoulder with all the right people in the right places, that you are a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that is what he was touting, that that kind of exposure is what made him um, be able to have confidence in the flesh. If somebody was going to have confidence in the flesh, he had it, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, yeah. Well, that's because that's the other side of things. Here he's touting. What did he have to... Well, his zeal was so, such to the point. Well, maybe that would be the Hebrew of Hebrews part of it, too, as well. That To the point that he was willing to persecute the church at that time. Wow. Wow. All right, going on to the next one. As to the law, he's a Pharisee. So what, what might that be for you and I in our world? Who are those who might cons be cons There you go, precept students, that's us. Oh, no, please don't tell me that. But you know what? It could be, Susan, because if you happen to be a student of God's word, even on this, this level, hopefully it's a real heart thing that's drawing you here. I believe it is. But... Could it be that there are people who come into an environment like this that simply want to be educated for the sake of education? And that therefore they can take what? They can do what with this? There you go. I know everything about God's word. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I know more than you know, and I can also stand against you in any, in any debate on any subject that's biblical. Yeah. Yeah. He knows all about God's word. Now, I'm just going to put about in parentheses there because he, he doesn't necessarily know God's word. He doesn't necessarily even know God, but he knows all about God and he knows all about God's word. So it's this Pharisee that's educated, but the education is on the mind level only that's not reached to the heart. That would be the Pharisee. I keep thinking about John even 
immediately start finding the loopholes. Yeah. Yeah. For the requirements on keeping the Sabbath, they make a little ring-to when they travel the Yes, right. On the Sabbath, the Sabbath day walk to this or that. And so they would legalistically mark it off. And then, then they would get around it by, in modern era, they get around it by setting timers on their clocks and setting timers on their light switches. They don't actually have to turn them on and off, but a timer does it for them. That's what I'm saying. Yep. Nope, can't punch button. Yep, yep. One of the verses that I looked in, I didn't put the reference down here, but here, uh, let me just read this. A true Jew is one who has had an inward spiritual experience in the heart and not merely an outward physical operation. People today make this same mistake with reference to baptism or the Lord's Supper or even church membership. We, what, what we're saying is just as they had a legalism to their way of service, the way of approaching God, we in our church today can have the same thing. Paul is warning us about these people who he called dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision. Let's do a, a, a real quick detour here. I want to read the definitions on these. Did you guys do your word studies on these by chance? She might ask us to do them next week. I don't know. I just jumped in and did them. Yes. You can't, but you can get an intellectual level of information. Um, um, I have a, a family member who's not a believer, but because I raised him, <laughs> he knows a lot. And he can tell you, and he will correct people. He can be in the presence of other pastors or chaplains or you know, spiritual leaders, and they'll say something, and he'll correct them because he has knowledge. You can have knowledge without having a relationship with God. It just depends on how good your education was, if you were exposed to the right truths. So it's possible to have, to have the, a, a knowledge of truth without having a relationship. And that's what I think he's, pardon? That's exactly what we're talking about here. And when you look at the contrast between the we and uh, uh, the us, the brethren that he's speaking to here, and then those who he ultimately calls uh, evil workers. He's saying, these are people who are among you who are playing a good game. However, what they are doing, and they're doing it subtly, and you need to be aware of it and be cautious of it, they are bringing into your, your uh, worship services an idea of legalism. And you need to say, no, legalism is not what it is about. He says it's not, he says at the end of that chapter, let's look at it together, uh, chapter 3, uh, when you get down to where you see the law mentioned in verse 6, he talks, uh, he, he concludes his confidence in the flesh statement, and he, and he's, um, he says, um, but whatever things were gained to me, those things that, in the eyes of the law, that was a gain for me. I was in the plus column, right? But those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count those things as rubbish 
And do you guys know what that word rubbish is? Trash? Garbage? Excrement. It's actually the word dung or excrement, which is a very strong statement. He's saying it's not only a loss, they are nothing but excrement. <laughs> so that I may gain Christ. Because you cannot compare the two. You cannot compare a, a, a legalistic, pharisaical lifestyle in faith, of faith uh, that you are pretending that you're walking in the, these rules of the church under the law, the, the, um, um, the expectations of what churchology kind of gives to us. And you cannot compare that to a true faith walk, one that is your heart is fully in, devoted to God himself and fully in love with what God did for you and what God can do in and through you because of his great love for you. There's just no comparison. And so he calls the one dung. <laughs> and he says, it's a, I count it as um, rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. So this is a righteousness of your own derived by the law. That's what he tells us there in verse 9. But he says, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So when he later says in 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard, that same standard of faith uh, to which we have attained. And then he says, follow my example. Exert, observe the pattern which you have in us. And then he again contrasts. There are those who do this. Many uh, walk of whom I often have told you. Now this is another one of those statements where he's saying to them, why is he writing? What is the occasion for his writing? It's a warning. He's warning them. He says, I, am, I have often told you and I now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. So here's another little clue right here in this verse about the occasion for writing. He's concerned about them, that they not get sucked into Judaizers, the teachings of the Judaizers that are amongst them. And, and qu quite honestly, any other kind of religion as well. There could be even other kinds of things that could creep into a church where they teach to you legalistic approach to God rather than an understanding that it's by faith, that it's his blood, that it's his work, not yours, right? Uh, and now I tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. So I would say he's literally saying that amongst you are unbelievers, they think they're believers. They're calling themselves believers, but they are not. Their end is destruction. And then he says, for our citizenship, those of us who have a true faith, those of us who, who set our eyes upon Jesus and upon what he did for us, and it's faith, it's through that faith that God reckons to us righteousness. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our body of our humble state into the conformity of the body of his glory. And how will he do that? By the exertion of the power that he has. Whose work is it? His, not ours. We don't do this. God will do this for us. By the exertion of the power that he has. That's the resurrection power. And if you didn't mark that as the word resurrection, I encourage you. The power is speaking of resurrection power. 
It's that same one that you see in Second Timothy that says, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That word power is dunamis. He's saying it's dunamis that he has, even to subject all things to himself. He has that kind of power. Wow, what a great lesson this has been. He, circumcision was the other subject, and we, we didn't get into it very much, but briefly we really did. We talked about the circ. She wanted you to simply understand that circumcision um, had a purpose, and she wanted you to make sure that you understood that its purpose was not salvation, and it was not linked to the Abrahamic covenant, but that it came after as a what? What was its purpose when it was added in chapter 17 of Genesis? A sign of the covenant. It was simply, and it actually is exactly like what in the New Testament for us? Baptism. What came first for Abraham? Faith. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So that circumcision, let's put on here Genesis 15 verse 6. He believed God, and then it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Right? Then in Genesis 17 came circumcision. It was a sign. It was also a seal is another place where it talks about it being as a seal. And what, what did that mean then? What, what, do you, what function did it play in the community of, of Israel? The idea, I had this question actually posed to me by a, a Jewish friend of mine just recently when I was like a couple weeks ago uh, playing Mahjong. And she said, well, tell me, do, the, do Christians um, do circumcision? And so I was able to talk to her about, no, we have in the New Testament, we have circumcision of the heart. And that's by the Spirit of God. The circumcision that you had was for the purpose of what? What was their purpose for circumcision? A sign. It was a seal. And it was also really an act for remembrance. What was it to remind them of? That's right. A remembrance. That's it. And he, I thought it was interesting, too, because when, when I did some research on that, it, it talked about that, him going to that point. He almost used hyperbole is what it said in the, in the commentary I read. And I went, yeah, that is exactly right. He took something that in the mind and the thinking of the Jewish person who lives this way with confidence in the flesh, and he said, I want you to understand that confidence in the flesh concerning circumcision, it is, go ahead, mutilate yourself. That's how much use it is right now today. Do we need to circumcise today? No. Why? Because the circumcision... Now, can you? Of course. Are you, a are you allowed to for all the reasons that we have today that we do that? Of course. Go ahead. There's, it does, it's neither here nor there. It doesn't matter. But the point is it has no spiritual value to you. It does not link you to God in any way. In the Abrahamic covenant... And the covenant of the law, it had value. Why? What was the promises given to 
Let's, let's cover them. What were the promises that were given to Abraham? What was, what was going to happen for him? Number one, they were going to get a land. We know that. They were going to get a nation of people. But the biggest one was the seed, right? And who's the seed that was being promised? Jesus. We see that Jesus is who was literally, as a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 3. Go to Galatians 3 on your own later and read the whole chapter. But in Galatians 3, it says that when he made these promises to Abraham, he was, promise, he was giving him the gospel. And then he says in Galatians 3.16, that seed that he was promising to Abraham, that seed by which they did this circumcision, that seed was Christ that he was promising. He wasn't promising him Isaac, although Isaac had to come first right? And then from Isaac, we, from Isaac came this nation, right? And then this nation was going to be put on this land. And then generations later would come this seed. And in the meantime, what were they supposed to do? Circumcise. And the circumcision was to remind them that through the loins of their nation would come the Savior, that's why they had, it was a sign, it was a seal, and it was a remembrance of that covenant that was promised. That was the purpose for the circumcision. For you and I, think about, think of this through really carefully. When you're baptized, what is it that's said when you go through your bapti- baptism? That's right. And so, and when, and, and in the raising it to walk in newness of life, but there's also the, the, also the picture of a, another resurrection, right? Of a future resurrection. So for us, when we are physically baptized, what is its purpose? Is it just like it was for this covenant? It, is it a sign? Is it a seal? Is it an act also of remembrance of promises that God has given to us? What's the promise when you and I are baptized? What is this chapter all about? The resurrection is coming for you one day that you have, you presently have been buried in this old body is buried, this old life is dead, and now you're, you're raised to walk, as he says here, walk in it, let us keep on walking, let us press on, let us reach forward, let's, let us do all these things in this present life, do, and by the way, do it joyfully, <laughs> and as you're walking, wait for the day of the promise of the things that are coming, that's what baptism is, it's, a, it's, a, it's simply a ceremony to help you remember the promises of God. It's a public testimony. Those Jews who would not be, be circumcised, what was to happen to them? They were cut off from the people. They were cast out. Why? Because they were literally refusing to believe God for the promises of that, of that coming seed who was Christ. And so in that community, since that community of people, the nation of Israel had been Um, created by God for the purpose of being a light to the world about the coming Savior, then if you would not engage in that, if you would not join in that, then you needed to go somewhere else. So you were cast out. Or some of them were actually stoned. But that's the extreme. Mostly they were simply cast out. They would leave the congregation. They were to be a distinct people, a holy people, and that circumcision was their sign of submitting to that. And it was to be every day for them personally.
Remember, this is a very private thing, right? Circumcision. But it was a private thing. Why, why the man? Because the man is the spiritual leader of their, con- of their home and of their community. And they were to daily be reminded that they had a Savior that was coming, a seed that was coming, and that would, seed would come through the loins of, a, of the Hebrew nation. Later, more details came of the line of David, of the, or the house of David, and of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, which is why he touted a tribe of Benjamin, right? And, oh, that's right, tribe of Judah. Sorry. Judah and Benjamin went together, though. That's why I got them mixed up. See, we just did kings and prophets, and they merged them. <laughs> anyway, so we have this, this beautiful picture of circumcision and its purpose. But what Paul is also saying to us here is circumcision, if it's not circumcision of the heart, what? It has no value. It's meaningless. Now, we haven't done tons more in this. I'm thinking next week we'll probably dig into this a little bit more. But for right now, we've got a really nice, good gr- grasp on what's going in in chapter 3. Its, it's major emphasis is on the, the faith walk of the believer living joyfully in the doing of the daily things, but doing so living, looking for that day of resurrection.